Mary, I'm going to ask you one question. It's a personal question right now. Mary, you're white, <coughs> and here are nine Negro students with you. You're from the South. You're from Nashville, Tennessee. Why are you doing this? Why did you become personally involved? Obviously, you've done something that's against the grain. Have you lost many friends? Yes, but I've gained many more. Um, why am I doing this? It was in Nashville when I first became aware of what was going on, and I was a college student and saw many other college students um, fighting for something that, <coughs> you know, theoretically, regardless of where you're living, you know, you still go to church and the principles are there, supposedly there. Um, I say my pledge allegiance, just like everyone else, and yet I think you have to find a sense of acting. You know, if you have beliefs, <coughs> you have to have actions or else you don't have beliefs. And if you, you know, if you don't have beliefs, what are you as a person? And so I found a sense of identity, I suppose, with other college students who were doing something that, you know, all along I had said was right, except, 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 you know. And there always were exceptions and reasons why, well, perhaps why there shouldn't be integration at the time. And yet when you really look at it, I think, you know, most of, of the irrational things that are put forth kind of fall apart and you find yourself as a person and as a personality and when you, you know, kind of look inside you and say, well, what is my responsibility to my beliefs, to my country, you know, as a personality, how do I fit in here, you know, where do I go? Mary, one more question. I'm sure many listeners wondering about this, the white people of the South. We see the kids from the University of Mississippi, we see them on the screen, and of course it's incredible. We hear their comments about Meredith. Are there, how many are there like you? This is a question, of course, that continually comes up. Lillian Smith was talking about it. Are there, do you feel that you represent something that may be there as yet unexpressed, or are you just an individual alone, or have just a few? I think especially among college students that there are many who are questioning themselves and the position that has been taken through the years. I think that, um, well, first of all, it's very difficult to take a positive stand, and I think there's an increasing number, especially of young people, I say again, in the South, who are not taking a stand, really, you know. They're on neither side of the line, which makes it somewhat better, initially. And as we see these kids on the TV screen, you know, they're in, the, I think, the last... Mary McCollum, her name. This is several years ago, a round table, Mary, the white girl, and nine of her Negro friends of SNCC. And that was the question asked. Obviously, the ecclesiastics may be wrong in this case. There is something new under the sun. Uh, something is happening as a result of what these young people are doing. And our guest this morning is Dr. Howard Zinn, who I think is the historian of this particular movement. He has a book called The New Abolitionist SNCC, published by Beacon Press, and other books simultaneously appeared on the shelf after publication of The Southern Mystique. Uh, Dr. Zinn was chairman of the history department at Spelman College in Atlanta, which is a Negro girls' college, yes. and now you're a member of the staff of Boston College. As Boston you listen, University. Boston yeah. University. Yeah. And as you listen to Mary talking, I think of your book, The New Abolitionist, you speak of the identity crisis the young people face today and our own identity as a nation. Yes. Uh, well, I was quoting Eric Erickson. Uh, you know, it's a strange thing how you... Uh, something you're reading at the moment, you, know, you relate it to, to what you've been thinking about for a long time. And as I w just before I started writing this book on SNCC, I read Eric Erickson's book, Young Man Luther. And he 
wrote about the identity crisis that young people face, that Luther faced, that other young people face. And, well, you can see it all around you in the country today, and I guess it's true of young people everywhere. Uh, they reach in a certain age, and uh, they ask, well, what am I going to do with my life? And in the United States, the, the rules are laid down sort of for what you're going to do with your life. You know, you'll go to college, you'll get a good job, you'll get married, you'll get a, you know, all the little boxes, some, some folk song yes. about that, I think. But uh, there's some people who, at this point of identity crisis, uh, take a risk, and they move out, and they, uh, they find something wonderful. Uh, and I think these kids in SNCC did that. Uh, they were touched somehow by something that happened to them, something they saw on a television screen, and uh, they faced that crisis and they came out of it, uh, new people, and in the process they're, they're transforming the nation, I think. This is, as you say, transforming the nation. Uh, you, you, you refer, the subtitle of your book, is The New Abolitionists. Yes. We know that in the antebellum period and during the Civil War, the abolitionists were, were yet there is a difference, isn't there, between what these kids are doing, uh, the, the, the circumstances and the abolitionists of the Civil War period. Yeah, there, there are a number of differences. I suppose one of them is that the abolitionists were mainly white. Uh, there were a lot of Negro abolitionists who, who were unknown and working in the movement, but the most famous of the abolitionists and the most you know, influential uh, were White, Garrison, and Phillips and the rest. And they worked from the North. They worked from outside, and the, so they, they propagandized throughout the nation about what was happening somewhere else. But uh, these abolitionists of today, the, the kids in SNCC, uh, they're mostly Negro. They're some white. Uh, uh, they're not talking at a situation from outside. They move right into the core of it, you know. Uh, they have a certain unerring uh, compass which takes them into danger, right into the heart of things. This is why they choose Mississippi, of all places. If they lived in Africa, they'd go to South Africa. Uh, and uh, uh, there they are, you see. Uh, they're like the old abolitionists in that they don't care what people say about the way they act, about hard, how hard they push or how much they cry about the actions they take. Uh, they're impervious to that kind of uh, criticism because they know that they're breaking through some hard shell and that in breaking through a hard shell uh, there's always a little trouble and difficulty and you upset people, but they know this has to be done. There's something else that impels them, and again, they not only they differ from the abolitionists in circumstance, but also from the young, shall we say, radicals and reformers of the 30s who yes. carried political banners. This R is something else, isn't it? Right. Yeah, this is right. not politics. There's something else here. Right. Uh, there's, uh, this girl, Jane Stembridge, this, I was thinking of her when I heard Mary McCollum. Uh, you know, there are few white people who attach themselves to this basically Negro movement from the beginning, which was a, a very good thing because it means that the movement has been integrated for, from the start. And uh, this girl, Jane Stembridge, uh, talked, uh, you know, about this kind of thing that you were talking about. She's a girl about. from Virginia, a uh, white girl from Virginia. Yeah. yeah, she's a girl from Virginia. You, maybe you... Uh, uh, I think you were you were looking about uh, at what she was saying about this fact of of politics, and uh, she says, uh, talking about SNCC, she says, finally it all boils down to human relationships. It has nothing to do finally with governments. It's the question of whether we, whether I, and I'm quoting her now, her exact words because I thought she put it just right. Said whether I shall go on living in isolation or whether there shall be a we. The student movement is not a cause; it is a collision between this one person and that one person. It is 
I am going to sit beside you. Love alone is radical. Political statements are not, programs are not, even going to jail is not. And I thought she put it right, just right. So it is this impulsion, since we have these young white people, Jane Stembridge for one, uh, Mary McCullum for another, uh, there's a boy named Bob Zellner. Yes. Now his involvement, this also involves not only a learning process on the part of young Negroes too. Right. I imagine the bitterness is quite natural, mm-hmm. and many can lead to an anti-white, all-around anti-white feeling. But the presence of these does something to the young Negroes involved too, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's an, it's an educational process for both. Bob Zellner, a white Southerner, and the first reaction of a Negro to a white Southerner is tension, suspicion, fear, hostility. And then uh, they live with him, they work with him in the most intimate surroundings, and they see him get beaten like them and go to jail with them, and something happens. And, and the fact of color recedes into the background, and the fact of him as a human being comes forward, which is the same thing that happens to us when we live among Negroes, and uh, then they become human beings, no longer objects, and, and uh, we're just people, and there are a lot of other important things about us, and color is as important as how tall or short we are. Oh, this involves your own experience. You speak of a teacher, a fellow teacher of yours, like a Canadian one, I forget, who who spoke uh, of, she taught at Spelman as an all, uh, there's a complex of Negro right, colleges in Atlanta, right? right? Morehouse it's, it's is It's all the, called the Atlanta University yeah. Center. Morehouse is the men's college. That's where M.L. King went, and uh, Spelman is the yeah. women's college. And as you are there, it, I suppose it's strange to you at first. You taught there for how many years? I taught there for seven years. Seven years. Yeah. Now, what was... What happened after you left and went back to Boston, went to Boston University? There's a colleague of yours who speaks of her impression, how pale everyone looked. <laughs> and your concept of beauty changes oh, too, doesn't it? Oh, I, I, think, uh, I think you're talking uh, perhaps about this white exchange student. Uh, that was it. A, a girl named Catherine Cade, uh, who is now in SNCC and in the movement, you know, the, uh, this is what happens to these people. But she, just, she was just a, a white college girl who came to Spelman College as an exchange student uh, for one semester. Didn't know what she was getting into, what it was like, and well, she lived in a dorm and uh, with Negro girls and went to class with them and so on and so forth. And what was interesting to me was how her whole visual world changed because of this experience she had. Uh, After living in a Negro world for a month or so, she was invited out to speak at this Lily White College in Atlanta, Agnes Scott College, which very recently became integrated, but at that time it was very white. Invited out to speak because this is the closest you see they could get to having a Negro speaker there, have a white girl who was at a Negro college. Uh, they're working their way gradually there. And so she, they invited her to speak, you know, what are your experiences in the jungle, sort of. And she, uh, so she told them about uh, her experiences at Spelman College. And then she came back and she was in our living room that evening. We lived on campus. And she said, it was so strange being there among all of these girls. They looked so different, all of these pale faces and sharp noses. And uh, it was very interesting to me because it, it indicated how quickly, this was just a month or so, indicated to me how quickly you can change the psychological environment of a person. This is true of Negroes, of whites, of Southerners, of Northerners. I no longer believe in fixed feelings and fixed psychologies. I think people are changeable, very changeable. You, you, you deal on this at length in your second book. If we could switch from book to book, arbitrarily. <laughs> your your yeah. other book is the one book, The New Abolitionist, published, yes. which is the history, really the definitive history of SNCC. 
and it's more than biographical works. It's a story of the change in a country's feeling. And the other one, that's Beacon, is The Southern Mystique. And I find this a fascinating book published by Knopf. And here you speak, you say the mystique is really not a mystique, the mysterious South. And you use the phrase how the hierarchy of values, how people in the South would prefer segregation, but there may be other things they prefer more than that. Right. Would you mind yeah. dwelling on this just a bit? Yeah, well, you know, this occurred to me uh, before I moved South. I should say it happened to me, but I didn't know what it meant. And then I thought of it when I spent some time in Atlanta, and I, w I lived in a Negro community, and I had contacts with the white community, and I watched white Southerners behave, and I watched changes in their behavior, and I suddenly realized that as a, a Northerner, a kind of prejudiced Northerner, and that I was prejudiced against Southern whites, you see, uh, I had something to learn about uh, how people behaved. And I thought back to an incident that occurred to me when I was in the Army. In, I was going overseas in World War II. I was in the Air Force. I was a bombardier, but uh, while we were on board ship, they gave us other duties, and so I was put in charge of the dining hall. Segregation. Uh, uh, the white soldiers ate at one time, and the Negro soldiers ate at another time in this huge dining room, and I was in charge. Big job. And uh, one day, there was a great mix-up. Never happens in the Army, of course, but one day there was a great <laughs> mix-up, and, and the Negro soldiers came down the gangplanks into the uh, mess hall before the white soldiers had finished eating. And there was no stopping them, of course. And they sat down in whatever empty places there were. Uh, first integrated mess hall in the history of the Army. <laughs> Accidentally. <laughs> Accidentally, right. And uh, this, I, I hear somebody calling to me, and this, it's this white sergeant, southern accent, saying, uh, Lieutenant, uh, there was a Negro sitting next to me. He says, uh, get this man away from here. You know? uh, and uh, I looked at him, and I was young, uh, lieutenant, not used to pulling my rank. Uh, but I sort of said to him, as, as rankish as I could, <laughs> I, uh, uh, you know, you're both going overseas to fight in the same war. It seems to me you could uh, sit together. You no, know, you're just going to have to sit there or, or, or nowhere else. I'm not going to move him. And then I, could, I looked at his face, this white Southerner, and I could see the turmoil there. I could see the conflict between all these centuries inside him of prejudice uh, and of feeling. And against those centuries of prejudice, there operated just one little immediate thing, his hunger. He knew it was a long time to the next meal. And I watched this battle, and then he lifted his fork and ate. And there was the parable. <laughs> yeah, and that, yeah, that's told me something, that if people... Uh, Southerners, as uh, well, as strong as they feel about the question of race, there are other things they feel even more strongly about, like eating, like having a peaceful life even. You know, most Southerners don't want to go through turmoil to maintain segregation. There are only a very small number who do. Most white Southerners, and we've seen this pattern, will accept change. They don't like it, they take it grudgingly, but they'll accept it. And once they accept it, then the environment has changed, and then they are going to change gradually. Well, this, of course, is a most revealing uh, look at it. You know that it's not ironclad. In your book, Southern Mystique, you speak of the emphasis on history weighing heavy, mm. and the history is yes. good and true. But you're mm. saying there is an immediate, there is a certain kind of pressure, the hierarchy right. of values. In this case, the soldier was hungry. And he knew that before five hours we'd eat again, that was more important yeah. than the centuries-old right. bread in. 
And I suppose the boycott, I suppose economics figures in this too, doesn't it? Say, well, the department store owner. Yeah, well, well there's, an, I yeah. guess, another example yeah. of the hierarchy of values where economic interest comes first. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rich's department store in Atlanta, which was boycotted and picketed for so long by the student movement in Atlanta, by my students standing out there day after day picketing, and uh, Rich's department store finally changed its policy. Now, why did they have a sudden moral change in heart? I suppose they claimed they did afterwards. Suddenly, they, they saw how, uh, how right the new position was. But uh, the, the fact was they were being hurt economically, losing business. And which came first? Uh, uh, and, and economics and money came yeah. first. It's interesting. Uh, there are gr- a great deal, by the way, in both books. They're loaded, you know, serious though they are, loaded with humorous incidents. But the humor is sort of almost zany. And, you know, the, the kind of insanity of uh, <laughs> racism <laughs> itself. Well, you know, the Negroes is, uh, uh, in the South has learned to use, to use humor as, I guess, a relief, a weapon, and everything. Maybe people... I guess I think of the Jews and their humor. Maybe people in tough underground humor, right? <laughs> right. People in troubled circumstances need humor desperately, and 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 I think the best humor comes out of these uh, social situations. And uh, you know, you were talking about the difference between the kids in SNCC and the old abolitionists. And one of the differences, of course, we don't know how much humor there was in the old abolitionists, but they come down in the history books as kind of grim people. Uh, and these kids, of course, are not grim. You know, they're, they're off in a paddy wagon to jail, and who knows what, and they wave and they smile. You know, I think this is one of the things yes. that, that's appealing about them. You I know, suppose the, the stories they yes. tell, they laugh about the terrible things that have happened yeah. to them in jail. Of course, the stories is when you were invited. It's interesting, you as a white teacher, uh, in this department store you're talking about, there was this uh, segregated lunch counter. You thought one day uh, the kids came to you and said, let's crack it. And so you and your wife uh, bought... Two, yes, for two cups of coffee and two sandwiches. Kind of looked and, peculiar. And I then this young couple joined you at the table. Yeah. And then what happened? They said, they won't serve you. So, but we're served already. <laughs> right. It was a, a strange thing because they had the, the manager, who was a very nervous white man. You know, he wanted to hold on to his job. He'd been given orders. And this is an interesting thing about white Southerners preserving segregation. Most of them are nervous, and most of the kids are calm. Uh, and it tells something, I guess, about the situation. But he was very nervous. And he came over to us, and the four of us were sipping our coffee and eating sandwiches and joking and having a great time. And he was so troubled. And, and he said, we, this automatic thing, you know, we can't serve you. <laughs> and of course, uh, um, John Gibson, the uh, Negro student with us, said, well, uh, we are already served. And so uh, there was nothing I could do. We sat there and they closed the counter. They put out the lights. They put chairs on top of the tables. We sat there in a kind of ghost situation for a long time uh, and, and then went home. Uh, and I think this was the first sit-in at Rich's. It started a long haul. 